Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What to do with returning or wanting to return to Canada, ISIS terrorists left this nation to become terrorists and participate in gruesome violence. Some argue reintegration into Canadian society without criminal charges is the best approach. I spoke with Tom Quiggan, court-qualified expert on terrorism, and here is what he had to say. An international newspaper column this week, the headline was, Enough Man Bashing, Traditional Masculinity is Not Toxic. The writer, Celia Walden, columnist, who happens to be married to Piers Morgan. Well, I spoke to Ms. Walden about the article. Homeless in Canada. Toronto orders homeless people to dismantle their shelters in the middle of a brutal cold snap in southern Ontario. Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun joined me, and I just today happened to see a man I worried was freezing to death. I called 911 and was basically told, if he doesn't want help, we can't give it to him. Some country. Listen. If you've been following news stories, and I know you have, and I really like the stories that Stuart Bell writes for Global News. He's, a, he's really an amazing reporter on the international scene. There was a story by Stewart earlier in the week. Canadian caught in Syria was commander of ISIS units, according to U.S.-backed forces. So the question then becomes, and it has several times recently, the question then becomes what to do with wanting to return, or in fact already returned, to Canada, ISIS terrorists who left this nation to participate in gruesome violence. What do you do with them? Some people argue reintegration into Canadian society without criminal charges is the best approach. Others demand criminal charges and prison time if convicted, pointing out we're still pursuing the few still maybe living Nazi World War II criminals. And what ISIS committed were atrocities. Now we also have, as you know, legislation in this country that was promised by the Prime Minister and delivered by the Prime Minister, it's called Bill C-6, which disallows the removal of Canadian citizenship from convicted terrorists if they are dual citizens. The law does not allow for the removal of Canadian citizenship of convicted terrorists because that's the way Justin Trudeau wants it. Australia has exactly the opposite law, And they've already stripped Australian citizens of their citizenship because they participated with terror groups. We did have one individual, the head of uh, Toronto 18, whose plan it was to essentially blow up downtown Toronto. He had his citizenship revoked by the Stephen Harper government under what was called Bill C-24. 
and that upset Mr. Trudeau. I want you to listen to a little, before I talk to Tom Quicken, I want you to listen again, just so you know what was said by the Prime Minister in 2015, and he's made it happen. Yes, yes. Uh, C24, uh, <laughs> it's the bill that, for me, exemplifies the Conservatives' approach to politics. Because what they get to say with the Liberal Party's staunch opposition to C24, because we absolutely and thoroughly impose it, is that, and I'll give you the quote, so you guys can jot it down and put it in an attack ad somewhere, that the, the Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. Because I do. <laughs> and I'm willing to take on anyone who disagrees with that. Well, we've invited you to come on the program on a number of occasions, Mr. Trudeau, but I guess you're not willing to take on anyone. The Liberal Party believes that convicted terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. Quote, end quote. Tom Quiggin is a court-qualified court expert on terrorism, criminal court and federal court, and has had his expertise on the reliability of intelligence as evidence recognized by the Federal Court of Canada. He's testified as a court expert in the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada hearings. He's worked as an intelligence expert with the RCMP, the United Nations, the Canadian Armed Forces, the Bank of Canada, and his most recent book is Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada with a Warning to America. You know, Tom, I've heard this quote from Mr. Trudeau at least, at least two dozen times, and it still rattles me when I hear him say the Liberal Party believes that convicted terrorists should keep their Canadian citizenship. Well, it's fascinating, Roy, because the very next words he says right after that are, because I do. In other words, because he believes it, it almost sounds now that the Liberal Party has to believe it, uh, which is also a bit stunning. But I think there's something really fascinating behind all this. It's not like he's saying once you're a Canadian citizen and once you have Canadian citizenship, it can't be removed ever, because that's not the case. You can still have your Canadian citizenship revoked uh, for something as simple as lying in the application process. So why it is so upsetting to Mr. Trudeau to have Canadian citizenship revoked for committing an act of terrorism, to me, is a bit strange when other people have lost their Canadian citizenship for arguably much lesser offenses. And I think in this particular case, it has to be argued that ISIS represents probably the most heinous group of people on the face of the planet so far this century, in that they were carrying out literally war crimes, crimes against humanity, they were carrying out a genocide, and they were carrying out numerous terrorist activities, while at the same time inspiring people around the world to commit terrorist activities in their own home countries. So to argue that there is some case to be made that they should be an exception or something like that, to me is just stunning. And it is part of, I think, Trudeau's larger 10-year-long history of supporting the Islamist cause every chance he gets. Uh, and that goes right from when he was first elected as an MP 
in 2008 up to the current, Roy. So I don't think you'll see him back down on this position because he truly believes in support for the Islamist cause. And, of course, these guys are part of that larger problem. You know, Tom, it's not as though ISIS tried to hide what they were doing. It's not as though they did it quietly under the cover of night. They did it openly on uh, on social media, and they used, as you pointed out, they used their atrocities to try to attract other individuals who would join them in it. Yes, well, this is another stunning pro- start. Uh, another stunning part of this overall problem is we have a bunch of folks now who are in Kurdish detention who want to return to Canada. The numbers aren't really clear, but it looks like probably about 14 people, four men, three women, seven children, and perhaps as many as 21 people, depending on whose numbers you choose to believe. But what's fascinating is some of these people are saying, you know, well, we didn't know what ISIS was all about. We didn't really participate in any of the atrocities. You know, we thought we were going to form a new caliphate. We thought it was going to be wonderful. But in fact, I mean, as you point out, the advertising, the branding that ISIS used was to put people in a cage and set them on fire, to put them on a, in a lineup on a beach and cut their heads off. This is what they were using as advertising. This is what drove these people to go to ISIS, was to support this kind of activity. So now when we have uh, people who are in captivity in ISIS, or we have former ISIS fighters here in Canada who are saying, you know, we shouldn't be criticized, or as one of them said, you know, they don't think they should have their activities belittled. They think Canadians should just leave them alone so they can move on and get on with their lives. And I find this just impossible to believe. These folks committed some of the worst crimes on the face of the planet so far this century. And, you know, we should be going after them hammer and tong. We should not be looking at, you know, sort of excusing their behavior, letting them keep their citizenship or refusing to charge them, which would actually be a rather simple process if the government wanted to go ahead and do it. Well, there is criminal law involved here. If you leave Canada, as you well know, if you leave Canada to to engage in terrorist activities, then you're breaking Canadian law. And you're yes, invi- if that's proven, then you're in violation of the criminal code, and that means prison time. Yes. So, for instance, this uh, lady who is the self-declared ISIS supporter who carried out the attack in Canadian Tire had, in fact, been known to the government as ISIS supporter in 2016. She left, tried to go to ISIS, got turned back by Turkish authorities, returned to Canada. They refused to charge her, even though they had that clear evidence of her. Uh, and then she carried out her attack in Canadian Tire. And it's like, come on, folks, you know, we got to start moving on this when we have the opportunity. The other thing is, of course, the uh, the public safety minister, Mr. Goodale, keeps making these statements. That, you know, it's hard to collect battlefield intelligence and it's hard to link these things together. And it's a difficult process. And the answer, of course, is it's not that hard, Mr. Goodale. Um, if somebody leaves Canada, as you pointed out, to join a listed terrorist group overseas, That by itself constitutes the crime. That by itself justifies the arrest and the conviction. So if the government really wanted to go after these guys, then they could. Uh, Just let me add one slightly positive note here, Roy. I've been detecting lately, coming out of public safety, especially with respect to the individuals held in jail in Kurdistan, the government now, rather than saying, you know, we're talking to these people to figure out what to do with them or communicating with, you know, diplomatic authorities or whatever, now they're just sort of saying, well, you know, we're monitoring the situation. So I hold out a bit of hope, you know, maybe just because it's an election year or something, but I'm holding out a bit of hope that somebody somewhere 
in senior liberal circles is getting the idea that supporting ISIS fighters is actually a bad idea, and they're starting to back away from it just a bit, maybe. Well, my answer to that is October 21st. Yes, that's, that's indeed one answer. Because, because you don't want to be caught up in, or oh, you're an ISIS sympathizer, you don't want to be caught up in that in the middle of the election campaign, because that could cost you the win. What disturbs me is I don't see a lot of reporting from anywhere pointing out, reminding people about Bill C-6, reminding people about what Trudeau said, which I just played back, and not for the first time, well, the first time today. There isn't a lot of reminding about what, in fact, has happened, is happening in Canada. And frankly, Tom, it's not just Canada. Tom, uh, these stories just seem to be gathering. There seem to be more of them. They're, they're coming in more, and more excuses are, are provided for these terrorists who, who left this country. And we know what, what, what ISIS did. You know, you consider the atrocities against just the Yazidi people. Little, if anything, is said about the Yazidis and the murders of their people, the sexual enslavement of Yazidi women and girls. Instead, we hear about ISIS terrorists imprisoned by Kurds who want to return to Canada. And the, the focus is just not where it should be. Well, it's interesting to note, Roy, that I think, and to the best of my knowledge, Prime Minister Trudeau is the only G7 or G20 leader who's actually said he wants ISIS fighters to return to Canada. Most other foreign leaders are trying to figure out ways of killing their own citizens over there, i.e. while they're still in ISIS, rather than having to deal with them when they come back. Or they're looking at ways of imprisoning them in places like Kurdistan or the Kurdish-held areas or in Syria or something to that effect. Um, it's also worth noting that the Canadian Center for the Prevention of Violence, which is supposed to be run out of public safety, and it's supposed to be the linchpin organization in the Canadian government that deals with the prevention of violence, de-radicalization, uh, returning ISIS fighters and all this. Uh, it's been in existence now for, I think, about two and a half years. It was one of the liberal government promises when they came into power, and they did, in fact, at least set up the website and perhaps some staff but there is no one yet in charge of it. Two and a half years after they set it up, and with the election upcoming, it's difficult to figure out if they're ever going to put anybody in charge of it. So while the government says it's committed, as Prime Minister Trudeau says we are, to you know, creating these people as an asset to Canada because they're going to be such a powerful voice for de-radicalization, the simple reality is we have nobody in charge of the program two and a half years after it was set up. So it's a little difficult to say that the government is even matching its own already doubtful rhetoric. Well, it's public. It's a public relations effort now. That's what it is. It's trying to keep the, uh, the pressure off, trying to keep the focus off, and trying to not make it something that's going to be front and center heading to October the 21st. How do you see this, how do you see this issue of returning ISIS, and you know, calling them fighters is granting them some credibility. How, how do you see this issue of returning ISIS terrorists playing itself out in Canada? We have Bill C-6, so you can't strip them of their citizenship if they're dual citizens, even if they're convicted of terrorist activities. How do you see this playing itself out? Well, it's a fascinating mess, Roy. Uh, like, I, like we just mentioned earlier, the uh, woman who carried out the Canadian tire attack was in, was in fact a returning person who'd gone to ISIS 
uh, and then come back. Fortunately, for all concerned, she was uh, when she attacked outwards with her butcher knife and her golf club. Three Canadian Tire employees knocked her down before she was able to do any real damage. Unfortunately, I think what we're going to see sooner or later is one of these ISIS fighters will carry out some sort of an attack. Uh, Canadians will be killed or injured, or worse still, one of these ISIS fighters will cross the border into America and carry out an attack there, in which case we're going to face massive retribution from the Americans because they are incredibly angry about this problem. So it's one of those things where you should be attacking the problem while it's still small and manageable, which it is now, rather than waiting till it blows up your face. But unfortunately, like you said, for reasons of uh, PR and for reasons of ideological commitment, I don't think this government's going to attack the problem until it literally blows up in their face. And just, just by way of general knowledge, Roy, it's fascinating in the last couple of public safety reports and on their website, they don't even talk anymore about foreign fighters or returning fighters. Now they're calling them extremist travelers and stuff like this. In, in fact, they're softening the language around them as though they're some sort of exotic travelers who are, you know, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, as opposed to people who've gone overseas to commit major acts of terrorism. So, yeah, it, it's not positive, Ryan. I don't think anything's going to happen until it gets really ugly. There should be a price paid for using terms like extremist travelers. There really has to be a price paid because that's a calculated move. Oh, very much. The entire, if you read the entire um, public safety uh, center for the study of extremism and violence or whatever it's called, or prevention of violence, it is a master class in bureaucratic baffle gab. Uh, you really have to read it through two or three or four times to even make sense out of some of it. And at the end of the day, you can see they're doing everything they can to avoid addressing the issue while appearing to be, you know, addressing the issue. Yeah. Tell us about your blog. Uh, well, this is uh, the Quicken Report is a uh, podcast we've been putting out for about the last year. It was prompted uh, into creation because of the ongoing attacks on free speech in Canada. So the Quicken Report tries to attack issues of security, intelligence, terrorism in this, in an intelligent, thoughtful, in-depth kind of way okay. through, the ver- through the various podcasts we're putting out. But, like I said, the reason we're doing this is because it is now becoming increasingly difficult to even talk about these sorts of issues in Canada without the threat of lawfare-style lawsuits. Tom, I have to stop you because we're out of time. But oh, it's okay, the right. Quiggin Report podcast, and thanks for coming on the show today. Cheers. Thanks, Always Rick. good talking to you. Tom Quiggin. I want you to re- just, just remind you of what our prime minister had to say about men, particularly one group of men, construction workers, and this was at the G20 meetings in Argentina. Just a bit of a reminder. It happened about a month and a half ago. You might not say, oh, what does a gender lens have to do with building this new highway or this new uh, pipeline or something? Well, uh, you know, there are gender impacts. When you bring construction workers into a rural area, there are social impacts because uh, they're mostly male construction workers. How are you adjusting and adapting to those? That's what the gender lens in GBA plus budgeting is all about. These are all things that we've been doing, not to be nice or to be better or to be moral, but to be smart about getting the very best out of all of our citizens and making the very best out of our economy because women entrepreneurs tend to make choices than, uh, than, uh, than others. We've seen it study after study. So this is all something that I see the world moving on 
in many ways. Leaders are moving on, uh, but the business community needs, needs to wake up and move on as well. And that's certainly something that uh, Sharzad here has done a lot of work on. Yeah, and we won't bring up British Columbia when you were 27 years of age and apologized to a reporter, a young female reporter, because she was reporting for a major newspaper. Because if you'd known she was reporting for a major newspaper, you never would have done what you did. But then you said it really wasn't whatever you said. Mr. Trudeau, please. It's embarrassing. And then at his town hall in, uh, I think it was in, uh, in Regina, when he was asked by a young woman who works with construction workers in the oil fields to really clarify his point, because she said, I'm treated extremely well by these men. They're like my fathers and my brothers. What do you have to say for yourself? He rattled on about something that had nothing to do with the question and then disappeared, disappeared into his usual mumbo-jumbo. Celia Walden is a columnist and an author. She's also a television personality and uh, a social commentator. She's made many appearances on major U.S. and British television programs and provided royal wedding commentary for NBC television. She's the author of Babysitting George. That's about uh, soccer star George Best and Harm's Way. And at CeliaWalden.com is the website. Her column this week, internationally, was enough man-bashing. Traditional masculinity is not toxic. Ms. Walden, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. What's your impression of, uh, of what you just heard our Prime Minister? My, I played back what our Prime Minister had to say about gender impacts of construction workers. Well, I think what I'm quite enjoying now is I do think there's a sort of fight back against just sort of insane political correctness. And your Prime Minister is famous, <laughs> famous for it, really. And when people get hoisted by their own PC-ness, there's something particularly pleasing about that. But particularly with the men bashing, um, I'm sensing people are sort of standing up now and saying, hang on a second, you can't just write off a sort of a whole sex. It just doesn't work like that. You know, men can't be responsible, held responsible for all the ills in the world and constantly apologetic. And we can't either hold up women as sort of some kind of super sex who have never done anything wrong, who don't have any... Um, bad characteristics, because by the way, we do. Um, and I'm afraid men are not allowed to say these things, uh, but as a woman, I can. Well, I want to ask you this, because in your column, you made the point that the current climate of, quote, kill the alpha male, end quote, mm. is baffling because it's increasingly difficult to find alpha males. Well, I just don't know where these men who are supposedly so sort of terrifying and and, uh, you know, grabbing women and, and sort of wolf-whistling. And, I mean, nobody's wolf-whistled at me in years. Um, and uh, it may be because I've just turned 40. But, but uh, I think it's more likely, <laughs> I hope it's more likely, that you're just, you're not allowed, really, to express any kind of admiration for women anymore. And when, when men do do so now, it's in a very, very um, apologetic, again, and sort of filled with way with it, filled with caveats. I'm not, I don't mean anything by that. I'm just saying I quite like your dress or, you know, and, uh, and you're, you're stuck in this sort of slightly mad world, which I feel is not particularly helpful to anyone. I've spoken with, uh, you know, with male friends who've told me they, they don't know really what to say to a woman they don't know beyond hello and nice to speak with you and then they basically stop talking. Yes. Well, that would be a safe way to proceed, I think. A sad way, too, that. isn't it? 
it, it's, it's sad. I think it's. I think the thing that, that pains me the most is that we've lost the humour. And for me, um, I know that a lot of bad things have been said about Shades of Grey, but there were also wonderful things about Shades of Grey, all that fun stuff where you're having a conversation with somebody of the opposite sex, and it's not necessarily flirting or anything like that, but perhaps it's just enjoying the fact that the two of you are different and that you'll never quite understand each other. And because of that, there's this mystery and this fascination. And um, all of that is now gone. You have to spell everything out or you have to behave essentially like a robot, and neither of those two things is, is really very fun. When I spoke with the uh, former president of the American Psychological Association, he said that men are, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said that men are victims of traditional masculine ideologies, and that, that, that men don't cry, that boys should feel free to cry. Um, and I ask myself, why are we doing this? And then I looked at the, uh, the the story more deeply, and this this study that resulted in the guide's been going on for for ten years or, or longer. So this 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 idea de- developing that that men are somehow uh, toxic monsters has it's been building for some time. For, for yes, for years and years, and and and, and it seems like all the most sort of essentially laudable traits of men, like. The same in the same study, stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, all were all deemed harmful to um, either to men or to both sexes. Um, in fact, all of those things are crucial to the economy, to society, to women finding men attractive, which again is fairly important if you consider, you know, the future of the human race. So um, I just think that you can't. And then again, there's no the same. Um, the same group of um, psychologists have not done any kind of how-to guide for women. This has solely been for men and solely been pulling apart male traits, as far as I can see. But there's not been anything done for women because, again, we are somehow untouchable and we've got everything right, which any woman will tell you is not true. What would happen to, uh, to boys if you didn't let them engage in sort of rough and tumble play. Not talking about bullying. I'm talking about kid stuff that the boys like to do uh, to, to, to work off energy. What do, you, what do you suppose might happen? I think it's completely natural for them to, 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 to be. It's in, I mean, anyone who has a, a, boy or a boy and a girl will know that there are certain differences from the moment that they're born, and you can't pretend that those aren't there. I think boys would... Um, I don't know. I can't even imagine. I mean, that they, they would turn on each other or something. Or there, there's a certain amount of energy there that needs to be got out. From my experience of, of boys, um, and and I think just pretending it's not there. And yes, of course, all men are not the same, and all boys are not the same. And perhaps there is a slight societal thing that men are not supposed to cry. Or, but I I don't think it's you know. I mean, there are enough. We see enough men emoting at the moment. If there are any more, then I think. Uh, I like that in your in your column where, where you wrote, um, "I'm the one who's going to need a good long cry if modern men start." start emoting <laughs> I, I, everywhere you look, there are men talking about their issues with you know being ultra sensitive to you know. I mean, you know, just bring back the alpha male. I can't. I don't. I don't see any anywhere. Trust, uh, tra- traditional masculinity isn't toxic. You're right. 
Yes, there may be noxious learned male behaviors passed down, but these are specific pathologies, not man in general. Now, I, I normally, I wouldn't bring this up normally, but I, but I will because of what we're talking about. Your husband is someone who has created headlines, whose points of view are dissected and, and, uh, and uh, discussed and I frankly, I, I quite like him. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with Piers Morgan regularly. Maybe in a minority. Who knows? <laughs> but, but I like him because he speaks his mind. And I was yeah. thinking about when I read your column, and I read that you were married to Piers Morgan, I thought, there are people pointing at Celia Walden's column or pointing at the toxic male figure and saying, she's married to one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, well... Thank goodness, because given the alternative, I think I'd rather be married to a toxic male than uh, than some sort of um, weak, uh, constantly emoting, um, you know, blubbering wreck in the corner. Um, uh, you know, I just think uh, I'm married to him because I like the fact that he says, both of us, I hope, are, um, are just not lying all the time. And I, and I just, I do feel we're living in a very peculiar moment when a lot of the things that you read on social media... These people, they don't actually believe that. And it's a strange world, isn't it, when people are just en masse saying things that they don't believe. Exactly. And, and then they can't remember what they wrote or said. Yes, yes, yes. Because they're too busy moving on to the next thing that you should be saying or should be thinking. What's the... Re- um, when so- I- Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that with, with a lot of women, when I discussed um, writing the, the column about toxic masculinity with most of my friends... They said, well, you know, you're not allowed to say it, but one of the things that women find sexiest about men is that they feel secure and protected and sort of feminine around them. Um, but, of course, if you say that, that, I mean, nothing could be more off message than to say that, and yet it's absolutely true. What's the reaction been, the response been to your column? Um, well, you always get the usual uh, sort of trolls, and um, and most people do tend to... If they're going to be vicious, bring up my husband. <laughs> but um, uh, actually, um, I've, I've got an astonishing amount of people saying, thank goodness you've said this, because this is what we're all thinking. Um, and, and particularly a lot, of, a lot from women, which I was surprised by. But lots of women saying, look, these are our, these are our, um, our boys, our brothers, our fathers, our grandfathers that you're, that you're bashing constantly here. Um, and... Uh, um, and actually, we're not okay with it. You know, they're not extraterrestrials who've suddenly landed on the planet. <laughs> they're people that we have been living with for an awful long time. Um, and so to suddenly turn around and say, everything about you is wrong and you're going to need to become more like us, is just, um, this is not the way forward. Yeah, I just want to bring one, one other point uh, into the conversation. I've been noticing for some period of time now that men have been taking a, or been assigned a secondary role in a great deal of uh, of media activity, like commercials, if you're if there's if there's a, a car being sold, it's I don't see the man getting behind the steering wheel very often, uh, and I get it that women buy cars and they always have, and women drive cars and they always will, and women may very well be the the dominant driver in the family, but it doesn't matter what it is, the male has been. Uh, maybe politically correctly, or maybe it's an advertising uh, approach, I don't know, marketing approach, but men have taken on a secondary role uh, in, in, in public presentations that feature a man in some way. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and in any, you'll notice in any drama or any, 
any thriller, um, the female detective is always immediately on to the killer, and there's always a slightly dim man <laughs> who who usually gets killed off early on because he's so dim he doesn't need to survive. Um, and uh, and that's and that's you know the producers giving themselves a little pat on the back for for being on message. Yeah. Well, we we can chuckle about it, but it's an important issue and it's a serious issue. And thank you for writing the column, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. All the best. CeliaWalden.com is the uh, webpage. Mr. Trump reached out from the White House to the Democrats and made an offer that had to do with uh, border security and then giving the Democrats, he says, what, what they want. And it was, I guess, predictably rejected by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. So what's going on in the United States is disturbing, but uh, you almost get used to it after a couple of years now. We've almost become accustomed to this back and forth, and it's only going to get worse as the uh, Democrats start to investigate everything that uh, President Trump does. There's a lot going on in the world. We have the Canada-China rift. We have uh, Brexit going on in the UK. What ultimately is going to happen as far as that is concerned? Joining me on the program to speak about all of this is William Ogborn. He's a strategic communications and public diplomacy expert with a track record as director and strategist for the U.S. House of Representatives, also the U.S. Department of Defense, the Department of State, Department of Commerce, as well as NATO and private companies. He's a former aide and uh, foreign policy advisor to the presidential campaigns of Governors Scott Walker and Dr. Ben Carson. Of course, Dr. Carson was a guest on this program while he was still trying to win the primary, the GOP primary, and become the presidential candidate himself. Mr. Ogborn, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let me ask you, first of all, to give me your sense of uh, what was said yesterday by the president and, and what the response is. How do, you, how do you interpret what went on yesterday? I see it mainly in, in this political chess theater that's going on, or Kabuki is more like it. It's, Trump is trying to seize the initiative. He's shown his offer. The Democrats' response, of course, is we will not accept that offer. We do not want to negotiate at all until the government is reopened. So it's, it's trying to put the ball back in the Democrats' court, and the Democrats, the way that they batted it back, was simply saying, we're not going to do anything. You have to give in 100% to us. And the president's like, well, that's not a negotiation, so here's my offer. At least try to make me a better offer or some kind of something that we can work with here to get this government open. So I don't see the impasse stopping at any point soon. Uh, this is all about 2020 now, isn't it? I believe so. I, I see the Democrats as thinking if they can stop the president from getting his signature issue passed, that means he's going to lose his base and he's not going to win re-election. And you're even seeing a lot of chirping from the right. Ann Coulter put out a tweet that Trump has already betrayed us because of the uh, um, deal that he offered the other day. And so they're seeing that and thinking, hey, if we stick to our guns here, this one's over. And he knows that. And so he's got a lot more to lose in uh, not getting his his uh, wall passed. So if he, uh, to use the word caves, if he caves, it's to the benefit of the Democrats. Yes, I believe so, because the Democrats have a lot more room to maneuver here. They can cave a bit on the wall and give something, get some kind of barrier, but then re-spin it as, 
we didn't agree to a physical wall. We agreed to these kind of different ideas of how we can do border security. And then they can come after them again with the impeachment or any myriad of things that I'm sure is going to happen for the next two years. Okay. Fair to say the Democrats are trying to attract the younger voters? They're always trying to attract the younger voters. Uh, certainly, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is leading that charge, which sometimes goes very much against the Democratic establishment, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, what they're trying to do. So it's interesting. They're, the groups led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are kind of really the hard line that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are trying to appease because they're seeing that as a new base and the way to grow their party. Yeah, it's making me wonder, making me worry as well a little bit, at least a little bit, about how the uh, United States government is going to move forward from all of this, because the more entrenched people become, the more entrenched ideas become, the more difficult it is to, I don't know if the word exists, unentrench them. Yeah, I mean, we're facing the point where eventually someone's going to have to sever the Gordian knot. And I don't just mean over the shutdown, I mean... Just in terms of the partisanship you're seeing in America in yeah. general, you know, certainly Obama tried to come in as this more of a purple figure and a uniter, but that didn't work at all. And at some point, I think the pendulum will move back. We might see more of a uh, the centrist positions come more back in vogue, but I don't know when that pendulum is going to start swinging. And no, I don't think anybody has any idea because it just seems to get further and further away from us right now. And it's not just the United States. You're seeing this uh, play out, this kind of scenario, play out in other countries globally. The British politicians at each other's throats, metaphorically so far, over Brexit. Uh, and I know you're watching that very carefully as a, as a diplomatic expert. What's, what's most compelling? And we've talked to people in the UK, particularly Professor Alan Sked from the London School of Economics, who's actually the founder of UKIP, the, uh, the UK Independence Party, which ultimately was responsible for Brexit. But what's most, most compelling to you about what's going on in, in, in Britain as far as Brexit is concerned? Well, I have to say that there are a couple of different things that I find compelling. One is just how this is playing out as similar to the U.S., we're seeing kind of the more rural voters, the working class voters going one way, and the more, you could say, ruling class elitists, but I would say generally more the urban cosmopolitan groups going another way. So you're seeing that same split here in the U.S. You're seeing that split in France as well with the yellow vest riots versus the ruling government of Macron. And you're even seeing some of that now popping up more and more in Germany. And a lot of them try to talk about this as a nationalist and a bad way movement, but I think you're seeing quite a reaction from how we moved away from the Cold War, and the kind of in-between period starting in the 90s, where we didn't really know what we wanted as a Western societies, and as the rise of China, and how Russia has reformed, and everything that's happened in the Middle East, but that's kind of, because nobody knew what was they were doing for sure, it's created a lot of uncertainty, and that uncertainty has kind of started really to peak, and the working class doesn't know where it's headed, not only with global stuff and markets, but also we've got to talk about AI and robotics and how that's going to affect them. Exactly. Yeah. And so when they don't see the ruling classes addressing those issues, they're starting to feel more and more like pawns, which this isn't the first time things like this have happened, but it's certainly the first time in probably the past 50, 60 years that we've really seen a movement like this. And I think it's been, uh, it's been under the surface, just, just below the surface for, for, for years it's been building, and now it's repeated frequently, but it, it's, it's a valid point. People can communicate with each other on social media very quickly and find out they are not alone with their ideas, they're not alone with their political positions, and so there's, there's a sense of empowerment 
And I think to a certain extent, maybe to a greater than lesser extent, that's what's happened in France with the yellow vests. Definitely. It, the Internet was supposed to be the great uniter. And what it did is it allowed for some of the offshoots of, I wouldn't say our craziest ideas, but our ideas that we thought we were alone on. And so we were trying to conform to more of the ideal. We were more willing to cut across those cultural cleavages, as we say in political science, so that we could come together as people. And that's not just in the U.S., it's not just in Canada, but I think that's any kind of system where you're dealing with those differences. But now you see, wait a second, there's a lot of people who think like me, and we don't like what those people think at all, and we don't have to be conforming to these norms of society. So you've been an advisor to major political figures, as we said, Governor Scott Walker during his presidential campaign, and Dr. Ben Carson when he was chasing the White House, and uh, he was a guest on this program. But it makes it more difficult, does it not, maybe sometimes almost impossible, for politicians or aspiring politicians to be able to gauge the mood of the electorate. Just when you think you've got it squared away, something else happens, and suddenly your what was a mainstream message is, is off in the fringes. Well, Trump certainly was a specialist in kind of seeing where the middle of the country, the U.S., was going, what it was feeling, capturing that, that none of the other politicians were worth willing to look at and address. So he was able to then move the Overton window to, like, these aren't the ideas we're actually talking about. They're over here. Oh, oh, okay, well, that bypassed everything I knew. So you had the, the candidates like Jeb Bush, who should have won in any other time period in the past 20 years, were left out there on the wrong side of everything. And I think you're seeing a lot more of these politicians come up, and they can capture that kind of populist mood. They're more tapped in, and it's more instinctual. And these kind of guys that thought they were highbrow, they knew what the every the game was supposed to be, they've been caught with their pants down, and now they're having to try and rethink how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And the populist mood is only growing. Definitely. And it's not just on one side, because a lot of people say it looks like it's on the right. But you see it very much on the left as well, and not just in America, but I think you see it in Canada, you see it in Britain, you're seeing it in France, you see it in Hungary, that these, you know, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez here in the U.S., which I really think it, is the only person that can go toe-to-toe with the president on social media and Twitter and really is gaining a following where they're the same way of, like, she might be saying factually incorrect things, but she's morally right. So we believe what she's saying, and we want to follow her, and we don't care what you think. Uh, It's amazing. I I mean, everything seemed, not everything, but so many things, so many aspects of leadership and politics and election campaigns are very predictable for a long period of time. You knew, for example, that during an election campaign, issues that we would have discussed on air leading to the election campaign often disappeared because little sidebar issues that ultimately meant very little to the governing of the country became talking points. And so you were stuck on talking points. It doesn't happen anymore. It's not going to happen heading toward the 21st of October in this country and our federal election. There's the, there's the ability to drag it back to the matters, to the, to the instances and the stories that matter. And that starts with social media, and it includes talk radio. Definitely. You see that any of these new politicians coming up that really have a sense of how to gain a social media following, they are absolutely more tapped into how to manipulate that, whether good meaning to or not, manipulating not in a bad terms. But also, they're more in contact with those folks 
you know, the, the typical politician was looking at it like, I'm going to be the on high and talk to you and tell you what you should think. Now we're really seeing more of an interaction where somebody can come in and say, hey, politician, this is what we think. And they can be like, you know what, that's a good point. I'm going to start using that a lot more and gain that following. Yep. Mr. Ogburn, let me come back to, to Brexit. How do you see this situation unfolding? There's talk about potentially a, a second referendum or maybe there's going to be another election. And uh, now I read that, that that you have indicated that you think Angela Merkel has perhaps has it in for the, the UK and maybe she's not the only EU leader who has it in for the UK. Yeah, certainly the EU and the EU is, is primarily, you know, Germany and France have the most power outside of the UK. Angela Merkel does have quite a bit of influence on the EU government, and she does not want to see Britain leave because we're talking about one of the top five economies in the world. That would be devastating for the EU. They know that. And so in order to also make sure that none of the other countries of the EU think about leaving, they have to make sure that it hurts. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. I thought you were coming in. Um, let me go into a little more. So is what they're trying to do there is make sure that if it does, if Britain is able to Brexit, then they are stuck with such a bad deal that other countries will be like, this is not worth it. You know, how they can't trade with the U.S., they can't trade properly with China, they don't get a good deal with the EU. Where would we go? So we better stay in the EU because that's our only shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, if there is a hard Brexit, all that would do, or one of the things it would do, is further kickstart populism. I, well, it would in a certain sense. Um, but at the same time, if there were not a Brexit at all, that's also going to be a kickstart to populism because you're going to see those rural voters be like, Hey, wait a second, we're having another That's referendum, right. and now we don't have a Brexit? Yeah. So yeah. You're, either way. What happened the first time? Let, let me ask you about the situation as you interpret uh, the situation between China and Canada at this point. We had uh, a, ca a Canadian who was convicted of uh, a drug crime, was given a 15-year sentence. There was an appeal of the sentence, and that sentence uh, became a death penalty. We have uh, you know confrontational situations developing between this country and China, with China accusing Canada of backstabbing, and we all know it's because of the the warrant that was carried out for the arrest of the uh, CFO for Huawei. What do you make of this? I think it's just going to go get worse in the short term. Not only for, unfortunately, most the worst for Schellenberger himself. I do not see China overturning that death penalty, and I think. You're, you're also seeing a lot of rhetoric from China saying, don't you dare, Canada, try and use your soft power and your other allies against us, because one, we don't care, and number two, we're going to punish you in some other way, shape, or form if you don't release the Huawei executive and if you try and get other people to gang up on us. Yeah, and they may, the Chinese may use Canada as, or may want to use Canada as an example to the rest of the world, uh, to, to other countries that might want to challenge them. Absolutely. You're seeing, uh, I think it's being called like a human rights diplomacy, not in a good way, obviously. It's like, how can we intimidate people on our shores that are yours that will make you realize, one, you can't play the game with us, and two, we don't care what you think about us playing the game. Mm -hmm. 
So it, it creates a lot of tension, not just with China. They're trying to create tension with the U.S. as where we're negotiating the trade deal. And they're trying to send a message to the other countries of the EU that this is not going to go the way that you think, because now China thinks there was actually an intel report that came out this past week that the Chinese government believes it can go toe-to-toe with anybody militarily. So they're feeling their oats there, and they know they're on the verge of becoming the number one economy within the next 10 years. So they think now we have to make sure none of these guys get too uppity because this is going to be their last chance to really break and do different kinds of deals and treat us as not that number one economy and number one nation. Mr. Ogborn, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on. All the best. William Ogborn. Uh, I've been a little off, uh, maybe a little off my game today, because I keep thinking about uh, the young homeless man who is, I believe, still sitting on a little retaining wall, the side of a very busy intersection where this radio station, CHML in Hamilton, is located. And the temperature uh, was, when I came in here, it was about minus 15. Wind chill was minus 30. Uh, It's now minus 7, and the wind chill hasn't improved much, and it's supposed to go down, I think, I heard minus 38. Anyway, this young man is sitting with a uh, blanket wrapped around him, and it looks like he's not doing very well. And how could you? If you're out there for hours and hours, maybe overnight. And people are actually stopping their vehicles and pulling into the parking lot of the radio station and going over and speaking with him. And I saw one woman just with her arms around him. And obviously they want to help. They want to do something to help. They recognize the imminent danger. And that is probably a scene that is repeating itself again and again and again in southern Ontario today and elsewhere where it's terribly cold in this country particularly urban areas. And so I called 911, and uh, they put me through to a dispatcher who said, well, we've already sent the police over to talk to him, but he doesn't want any help, so there's nothing we can do for him. Meanwhile, McMaster University Hospital, which is one of the renowned hospitals in this country, is literally, literally two minutes away. But you can refuse help. Supreme Court of Canada says you can do that. It's your charter right to refuse help. Even if you may not be completely understanding of what that could result in, like losing your life or losing limbs. And I'm just so disturbed about that, that in in this country today, this goes on. And, yeah, if, if, he, if he were to pass out or in some other way uh, be harmed, then the police can intercede and paramedics can intercede, but not at the moment. And I've talked to this young man on a couple of occasions over the last couple of months because he's been president of that intersection for, for some time. And uh, I know now that... Uh, Lisa, who uh, produces this program technically, has gone over and talked to him and brought him some uh, some pizza, which was I thought was a very humane thing to do, a great thing to do. 
And uh, Will, who's called screens, has gone over and talked to him today. And I've talked, like I said, I've talked to him on a on a number of occasions and gave him a little money at Christmas time, and he started to cry. And I'm I I I wonder about him. I don't want to ask him questions. I don't want to intrude. Maybe I should just talk to him. When I leave the station, I will. But I wonder, could he be a, a military veteran? Could he be somebody who? Who wore the uniform? I don't know. He looks to be in his perhaps early 30s, mid-30s. He's not standing in the intersection asking for money. He's just sitting on this retaining wall. So I'm joined now by my good friend Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun. And uh, Joe, I watched your your video of uh, when you talked to homeless people in Toronto, and it went along with your story, Homeless Advocates Rip Cities Dismantling of Tent Cities. So, you've seen you've seen the stories I'm describing again and again and again, and it it breaks your heart. It does, and uh, I'm just sitting here as you're telling the story with chills. Not just because it's cold, but because of you know what you described there. And it is a it is a huge dilemma because we don't have the you know, the capacity and the rules that they can say, look, just scoop this guy up and deal with it. But there's another thing, too, and that is that we have never embraced anything new in my 34 years of being a street reporter. Everything's just pretty well the same as it's always been. We've never used technology. We've never ever, with all this development in both, uh, you know, all the big cities in Canada, particularly where I live in the GTA, there's more buildings here built in the last 30 years than anywhere in the world, I'm told, with the exception of a couple places, but in terms of democracies. And yet, not, never once has there ever been a deal with a developer to say, look, you can build over there, but you're going to build a homeless hotel slash condo, a big one, that could hold you know, a lot of people. And it's going to be something new, something different. And it's going to be, you know, there's going to be some public funding and some private funding, and we're going to get all the agencies involved and all the charities involved, and we're going to do this. We're going to try it. Pilot project. They tried it in New York, uh, you know, and, and I understand I haven't never been there, so I don't know if I can firsthand say, Roy, if it works, but I understand they've had success. But I'd like to try something new because the story you just told is happening 100 times around the GTA today. Yep. At least. At least. And there's nothing you can do to really help. Well, there is. There is something. You, you were doing it. And, you know, I just mentioned an idea. Uh, so It's an excellent idea. A lot of places around the world. You know, I'm just hoping for the listeners that, that this is why you had me on for talking. And I didn't think of that before you just came out of my mouth, what I said there. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to push this idea. It just popped in my head because I've thought of it before. You know, I was over at the Good Shepherd on Queen Street in Toronto, Stambee Hall, and I, we wrote a story. It's going to run next weekend, I understand, but it, they're having a big fundraiser, um, and we went to talk to Father Ed Case. He'd be a great guest for you sometime, uh, Catholic priest. And this guy said something that I had never heard before. Maybe it won't surprise you, but they talked a lot about military, too, in this, because they've got 20 beds dedicated for military at the Good Shepherd because it's a new problem. I think you're right. I think that's who that is out front of your place, by the way. But 
nonetheless, the one thing that he said to me that I had never heard before was that people are tortured by their memories and their errors of the past, sometimes 50 years before. And he feels, in his experience as a priest for 50 years, is that that is what puts them in a position where they're, in essence, you know, mentally paralyzed to do anything, even though people are there to help. And so the second thing I'm going to say is that we need to get, and there's already enough put on law enforcement and ETF firefighters as it is, but, you know, like a counselor kind of approach where you can talk to somebody like this um, in a professional way and maybe draw on some of these things. And with the technology, too, put him in touch with somebody right away that he may know or want to know, want to talk to. Out of the box thinking, and, uh, and I'm not criticizing anybody, Roy, when I say that. I'm just just trying to throw out some ideas that I know I can tell you're so frustrated. I hope that helps. It, it does help, Joe, and it, it all makes sense. And there and there there are today there are buildings that are vacant that could be immediately used. If 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 someone who's homeless doesn't want to go into a shelter where they're immediately by, beside someone else, you can create some separation, some privacy. Uh, in in existing buildings, just as a just as a temporary we, look, there's things we can do, well, and we're not doing it. And and Joe, when you talk to the homeless people, and you've done that, and I I I, I read your I mean I read your story several times. Homeless advocates rip cities, dismantling or ten cities. When you when you talk to the homeless people, what's the common denominator that they that they share with you? They're they're like me. They don't like the rules. They have a problem with authority and rules. Structure, yeah. and you know, Roy, I, you know, you, you can pull up, pull up uh, fifty years of a radio show and hit all those marks, but nobody tells you how to think, how to how to act, and how to, uh, you know, I can't tell you what to put on your show, even if I paid you ten million dollars, which you wouldn't accept. You're not going to follow along with what I say. So that means that if you were in a position where it doesn't take a lot for everything to fall apart, you can get an addiction. That could happen because you hurt your knee and you slipped and fell and you took some painkillers and before you know it, uh, you start to go downhill. This is this story has been told by homeless people and there's there's people that are, you know, have been to prison and there's there's people that have had unfortunate set of circumstances that happen and uh, and so you know it's it's human compassion. I remember when we had Wellesley Hospital in Toronto um, and they tore it down. This is a while ago now, but. I remember saying we're going to put condos there. And I remember even then thinking, well, why not build something for the homeless there? And you say, well, yeah, but they, they won't go into these things. Well, some will go in and then out of the box thinking. You see now in the new emergency wards and hospitals, in, in addition to the beds, they've now got areas where you, you sit as well with all the equipment right there. So there's, there's the beds and there's an area to sit because they've added 20 or 30 spots now in lots of hospitals where you know, you're getting treated as opposed to sitting out in the waiting room. Well, there's an out-of-the-box idea yeah. uh, that works. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you know yourself, if you're in an emergency for six hours, it's nice to get to that, that sort of specialized seat, even though it's not completely in, it's partially in. So they could do things like that in around the buildings, um, create some uh, hot zones and some warm areas, sir, and say, well, look, you can't, we can't make you come in, but, sir, right over here two blocks away there is a warm area, the warm tent shelter area, we're going to take you over there. And then if you want to come back, you can. Um, 
So, so there are things we can do, but we don't do anything. I don't see anything being done. Just throw money at it. There's lots of counselors. There's people that care, people like your producer. Um, there's lots of food available uh, in, uh, you know, your area and also across the country for people that put up soup kitchens and, and uh, shelters and things like that. The guy that I wrote about that you're referring to, you know, I... I I don't go at this thing with a uh, Joe. Joe, can you can you can you stick with us a couple of minutes? Yeah, you bet. Okay, we'll talk some more with Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun because he knows the streets and he cares about the people. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Joe. You know what you're very good at. You're very good at understanding the fundamentals of 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 issues. And and I just want to I just want to say this 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 story about this young man uh, who I've been talking about. It, it, at this particular time of year, it was actually almost to the day when, uh, when, when my mother and I found ourselves in Montreal, uh, January night, knowing no one, uh, deposited in downtown Montreal by taxi. And I won't get into the story about why that happened, but we had no money. We didn't know anyone. We had nowhere to go. I'd never been in Montreal before and had to stop a police car and ask uh, for a police officer for help. And they took us to a homeless shelter, and that's where we lived for a couple of months. Wow. Thank God for the Salvation Army. And, uh, yeah, so that was my, that was sort of my start in Canada. Um, and uh, I'll never forget that horrible feeling when you're, and I was, I guess I was just 14. And where, where, where were you from? Well, we'd, we'd come from Switzerland at the time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so... And so I'll never forget that horrible feeling of, of not having not having any help, not being able to go anywhere. But that police officer took us somewhere where at least we had shelter, and we were fed. And I went to school, and I was enrolled in school, and then I went back to the homeless shelter every day. Well, Father Key said it: you're 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 a slave, or if you will, to your memories. And you know, you this is hurting you still. It is all these years later, and that you know that it hurts me because it hurts me because I see this man. Right. And it, it 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 hurts for him, you know. I think it, and and what bothers me is, and this is not a criticism again, but that we have so many innovations, so many new structures, so many new ideas, new ways yep. of doing technology, all this stuff, new restaurants, but we've got nothing new here. Yeah. And 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 so that's what I'd like to think out of the box. And one idea I had was that you know maybe once a couple of times a year. People, you know, could go to a place like the Salvation Army and, you know, and have a meal and make a donation or whatever. Maybe that that would help, and also volunteer. Yep. I was thinking about it at Stampeel, and I were so moved at the Good Shepherd and the work they do there that we're both going to go back and uh, and volunteer there. And we're busy people, as you know. It's hard, um, but we're going to find a way because. We were just so moved with what we were seeing. And then, you know, the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, these mean streets are, you know, they affect everybody because that, with along with that, that affects uh, the crime rate and the different things. So, you know, it's, this is everybody's problem, not just this guy's out there. And I'm so proud of you, Roy, and your producers for pointing this out today. I know it's really moved you, but... Uh, it has, you know, you know I, I saw I saw two people. Um, they they parked their minivan in our in our parking lot, 
And they went over, and the, the, the lady, the woman there, she was the one, the lady here, you're not supposed to say lady anymore, I guess. She put her arms around this man, the homeless man, and just, and just hugged him. And the gentleman who was with her was holding the homeless man's hands, and you just, you could just feel the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the emotion. And then as they left, another car pulled in, and two women got out and went over and and stood with him and I guess everybody's probably asking him to you know off maybe offering him to take him somewhere where it's warm or do something for him and uh it, it brings out spontaneously the best in people but what you're saying is so sensible let's think out of the box let's take advantage of of our knowledge let's make a difference let's not just say ah oh, we can't do anything because the law says this or the law says that we can and we must That's all I have to say. Still there, Joe? Yeah, so one uh, thing that I notice in, in most uh, towns is that there is a, you know, like a, like the, where the Target stores where they're empty, you know, like they just sit there empty. Yeah. And, uh, and there's lots of places like that. And I wondered if there was an incentive for the landlords to not just open up a homeless shelter. That would be, you know, obviously that's important, but that's not what I mean. Yeah. To create a, a, an interesting, you know, maybe temporary kind of area. They can put right. a few trees in there and maybe a waterfall and some hot Joe, chocolate. Joe, I'm going to have to take the half-hour break here, but thank you so much for coming on, and thanks for what you do, my friend. Everything all the best. You, you take care, and thanks. Let's, all, let's pray for that young man out there. Let's pray for him. Thank you. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun. And that scene outside our radio station is repeated again and again and again. And it's just so wrong. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.